You are listening to the Creekside Church Message Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this week's message from Pastor Terry Riley, titled The Shepherd Four, from the series Hearing God. For more information, visit creekside.org. Psalm 23. Go ahead and turn there if you would. We're actually going to finish today, believe it or not. As we've been in it now for, this will be the fourth week. It was supposed to be a one-week adventure and uh, I just felt like as we got into it, I'd never really preached on it before, that it'd be good to uh, kind of unpack it a little more. So I want to read from the beginning, and we're going to focus today on verses 5 and 6. Remember John 10, Jesus says that I am the good shepherd. So really, we're talking here about the life of Jesus and this powerful, precious picture of how he relates to us. Psalm 100 says that we're the sheep of his pasture. So it's really this whole relationship between the sheep and the shepherd that we're learning about. Verse 1 says this, The Lord is my shepherd, there is nothing that I lack. He lets me lie down in green pastures and he leads me beside quiet waters. He renews my life and he leads me along the right paths for his namesake. Now we noted last week that there was a little transition that took place in verse 4. What happens is, is the psalmist David, is he's talking about God. It's almost as if he's telling us about God. And then in verse 4, he makes this kind of radical transition to say he begins to talk to God. It's almost as if it's a prayer. And so we see this powerful transition because, as we said last week, if you're beginning to walk through some deep weeds and dark valleys, you want to know God and you want to talk to God. You don't just want to talk about God. And that's what happens here with David. He says, even when I go through the darkest valley, I fear no danger. Why? Because it's no longer for he. He's saying, you are with me. And he says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now, here's another interesting transition that we're going to look at today, too. He moves from kind of this sheep and shepherd metaphor to a metaphor of a banquet, of a celebration, of a home. And he says in verse 5, he says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, and you anoint my head with oil, and my cup overflows. Why? Because only goodness and mercy will pursue me all the days of my life. And because of that, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So we see these two transitions take place. And what I want you to see today, I'm going to make a couple of different points of application for us. Um, and I want you to see that the first thing God does, is, and the good shepherd does, is he really, he covers me in verse 5. He says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Now to stay with kind of the shepherd and sheep motif, we understand that sheep have a lot of natural enemies. We've been talking about this now for a few weeks, and we've realized that sheep really are not the smartest and most self-sufficient animals. It's probably they're some of the worst in terms of that. They have to have a shepherd to be able to navigate their life and to get around. Now they have some natural enemies, some natural predators. Some of those predators would be wolves, lions, coyotes bears, things like that. But they also have a couple that we probably aren't, for many of us, wouldn't be familiar with. Now, has everybody had a little bit of time in between breakfast and now? Yeah, oh no, yeah. I know, this is, but this is true, so I've got to be able to share some of it. Sheep have some natural enemies. One of them is nose flies. 
And what happens is, is these flies were very unique to them because as soon as they saw them coming, this is what they would do. They would, they would get very skittish and very uh, uptight because they knew the, the possibilities of what could happen. So what these nose flies would do is they would come and do that. They would fly up into their nose, into that soft mucous membrane. And here's the deal. They would begin to lay larvae. And then it would become these little worms that would begin to work their way up into their head. Aren't you glad you came to Creekside this morning? <laughs> but this is true because what would happen as those larvae larva begin to grow and expand and move up into their head, these sheep, because they had no way to be able to scratch them out or get them out, they would literally just move their head like this back and forth very violently, sometimes for hours to try and get them out. Or they would get to the place where they would have to find themselves a tree or a rock and they would just begin to beat their head against it because you can only imagine what that process would be like. So what did a shepherd do? When he says, you anoint my head with oil, what a shepherd would often do is he would take, um, he would take uh, oil and he would probably mix some sulfur into it and then he would begin to place it, anoint the little sheep's head with this oil and his uh, nose and area because this was acted like a repellent to keep these nose flies out. He had another enemy that we're not familiar with. It's called a adder brown snake. These snakes lived underground and as the sheep would go around and they would look for food or they'd be eating, all of a sudden one of these snakes would come up out of the hole and it would bite their nose and would either cause severe infection, sometimes death. So what the shepherd would do is he would, quote, anoint these holes with oil so that if they tried to come out, it would be much harder for them to get out and to attack the sheep. And then, he, the sheep. And then he'd also put some of this oil on their schnoz, on their nose, so that it would repel the snake when it came up. Interesting stuff. See, the shepherd's job was to find what they called a good table or a mesa, a field of green grass that was a safe place for the sheep to go and eat. And his responsibility was basically to drive out and to deal with all of these enemies. Now, if that's what they did back then, David's writing this, and why did, what is he saying to us? He says, I want you to know that the very things that the shepherd did for those sheep, the good shepherd does for us. Anybody here have any enemies, people, that are irritants, that annoy you, relationships that in our lives that bring annoyance to us. Sometimes they even hurt us. Well, here's what our shepherd says, just like back then. He says, let me drive them out. Let me take care of those for you. Don't seek your own revenge. Don't try and deal with these people solely on your own. Don't retaliate, even if they've hurt you. You know what he's saying is give it to God. Let God settle the ultimate score. That's hard for us, isn't it? Because we like to fight. We like to take care of our own. Because we know that if we leave it to God, what's he going to do? He's probably going to forgive him. He's probably going to love him. He's probably going to let him go. Now, don't forget that because it's the same with you and I. David says... You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Romans chapter 12 is a treatise at the end on how God deals with people. And he says this to those of us who follow him. He says, never pay back evil for evil. 
evil. Let it go. Let me take care of it. Have you ever noticed how revenge really doesn't work? It just continually keeps the hurt alive. And there's only one way you'll ever get relief when you've been hurt deeply or you're getting hurt in life right now. And it's really through forgiveness. Now, now understand, forgiveness doesn't say this. Oh, it's okay that you hurt me. It's no big deal. It doesn't say that didn't hurt. It doesn't stash it. It doesn't deny it. But forgiveness is, is basically saying that I am going to forgive the evil that's been done to me. And it begins to let it go. It begins to release it because of the power of what Christ brings to our life. Forgiveness simply means releasing my judgment and giving it over to God. Why would we do that? Well, because we've been forgiven by God. God's forgiven you. And he says, because you've experienced that, I want you to begin to live that out and give it to other people. Here's another reason, because ultimately resentment and revenge will simply make you miserable. You'll become consumed with it, and it will basically consume you and begin to affect every relationship around your life. And, and really, here's the big deal. Did you know you're going to need more forgiveness in the future? <laughs> yeah, yeah, we will. This is what Jesus said on the, the, the talk on the big hill. He said, blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. See, loved ones, every one of us is going to need it down the road. Now, there's a second point to this. Prepare a table. It's the idea of a great celebration. See, after a great military victory, the general or leader of the army, they would ride into town on this big white horse. And you can see this imagery in a couple of other places in the scriptures, too, that stand out would be Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 14. Psalm 78 kind of gives a big, broad picture of how this happens as well. And, and so he would enter into these gates on this big horse with his troops and the captives and all the spoils of victory. And so what they would do, they would get into the city square and they'd begin to just simply celebrate that they won. And it was a statement that their God or gods were the vanquishing gods and helped them to win this victory. And then after they celebrated for a while, they'd, be, they'd set up this great big feast, these big tables where everybody would come and they would eat. And they would again declare that the gods that they followed were the ones that gave them victory. And they would basically do it in front of all of the captives that they brought in and with all of the spoils there. It was a statement of the power of their god or their little g gods. Now there's this powerful this theme that is threaded throughout the scriptures about Whenever you see a banquet, God was into food. God was into celebration and eating and banquets and feasts. And it almost always had the idea of, of a point of fellowship, communion, and relationship that took place around the banquet tables. It's woven throughout Scripture. It's a wonderful, wonderful theme and tapestry that we get to see. And a lot of these passages in the Bible talk about this final victory the great feast that we'll get to see in heaven that it talks about in Revelation chapter 19. But one that comes before that we see in John chapter 13. Remember when Jesus, he's getting ready to check out. He's hours away from being betrayed by Judas. And so he gets his disciples, his brain trust together, and he brings them together and he's sitting around. What does he do? He sets up a feast. He sets up a table with food. It's got wine. It's got water. It's got food. 
And this is the last time that he gets to be with his disciples before he's crucified. What's interesting is, is that they all come and Judas is a part of it. Verse 2 of chapter 13 says this, Now by supper time, the devil had already put it in the heart of Judas to betray him. Now Jesus lets him sit around the table and he talks about Someone here is going to betray me. Now, what's interesting, isn't it, is all the disciples are going, what is it, me? Is you? Who is it? <laughs> you know, they, it wasn't like Judas wore this black mask or this black suit, bad guy, betrayer. They didn't know. And so Jesus, Jesus gives a little hint, and he says, the one that receives the bread and dips it in is the one who will betray me. And so there's some things that take place. In about verse 27, Jesus serves the bread to Judas, and he dips it in, and Jesus says to him, what you do, do quickly. He's basically dismissing him. I find this interesting because at this place, as we see throughout the scriptures that all of these meals that take place throughout the scriptures have to do with victory. They have to do with communion, relationship, and fellowship. Jesus, a Judas was allowed to be there, but he wasn't allowed to stay and eat there. You say, well, what's, well, what's the point? I believe it's this. Jesus sets this table up as a table of celebration, of victory. And he begins to unpack for them. I am leaving. I'm checking out. I'm going to die for you, for the sins of the world. And they still haven't totally, fully embraced it, understand it, understand it yet. But he says, this is a celebration that I want you to remember because not only... Am I doing it for now? But I don't want you to forget this until I come back again. He says this to Judas. Judas, the devil has entered you. And I wonder if Jesus isn't saying to us and reminding us today that even though the devil is around and we believe that he's real, he may tempt you. He may cause some of us to stumble but he will never have the ultimate part and parcel with us because Jesus has won the victory. And it doesn't matter what you face. He's dealt with this, as the Bible calls him, the serpent. He's anointed you and I. He's strengthened you and I to be able to overcome the works and the wiles of the enemy. And then if you fast forward to Revelation chapter 3, there's a powerful verse that many of us might be familiar with. Again, Jesus is talking about a meal. Revelation chapter 3, verse 20 says this, listen. A lot of times we, we look at this as some kind of like, quote, altar call thing, but he's really talking to the church. He's talking to this church in Laodicea, and he's saying the same thing today to Creekside, to you and to me, his church. And he says in verse 20, listen, I stand at the door and knock where your heart it says, if anyone hears my voice, we've been talking about that, that through this whole process, we want to be people that are consistently hearing God's voice, the shepherd's voice for our life. He says, I will come into him and I will have dinner with him and he with me. What's the purpose? It's always about fellowship. It's always about relationship. It's always about entering into the presence and life of Jesus. And then he says this, the victor. 
the victory, I will give him the right to sit with me on the throne just as I also won the victory and sat down with my father on his throne. He's saying, listen, loved ones, I've given you the victory. I am setting another table for you, and I want to be with you. I want you to be with me. I want you to hear my voice. I want you to experience the power and the victory that my life brings because I've overcome the snake or the snakes of your life, the difficulties of your life. And sometimes we forget how much God really wants to be with us. I remember it was two weeks ago, and um, our oldest son, Joel, celebrated his 33rd birthday, and so I finally had a Saturday that we could celebrate it where it just there wasn't anything crowding or pressing it. So we had uh, Isaac and Joel and Janice, our grandson, come over. And so we make the, we always ask our kids, well, what do you want? What, what do you want to eat? What, what's, what's your favorite? So Joel gives us about seven things. He's about 6'5 and 600 pet. No, not about 220 now, but he's a big kid. So he kind of gives us this grocery list. So, so, and Trina, you know, she doesn't feed five. She feeds like 50. And so they come over and all this food is out. And little Isaac, you know, he's almost seven. He goes, whoa, look at all this food. And so, yeah, we're excited about that. And they come up to the table and we're eating. And then Joel looks at us and he goes, you know, this is really nice. You know, you know Dad, Mom, we, we, we need to do this more often. See, what was he entering into? It, it wasn't just the experience of the food, but it was the experience of the fellowship and the relationship. And I, I kind of think that that's how Jesus comes to us, loved ones, and he says, I, th- th- this is what I want. This is what I love. Because it's here, not only will you find great joy, but you'll experience great victory. How do people, how do we live with the grit and to keep the courage to keep following Jesus, the good shepherd, when our life hits the stuff? I think it's because we have a hope and a future and we have a promise that whatever enemies we face, whatever difficulties we face in this life, we have this incredible shepherd who has promised us victory as we walk with him, as we experience the fullness of the life of his presence. And then he goes on to say, he goes, he goes you anoint my head with oil. I already told you how the shepherd did that for the sheep. But it seems in this transition that maybe the sheep aren't necessarily the focus as much as it is the banqueting table that we've, and the banquet that we've been invited into. In this day, another area of anointing was if you were the host of a great feast in your home, that you wanted to have a bunch of friends to come over, you would anoint the guests as they came in. You would put together uh, some oil and some spices and some perfume and mix it up. And as they came in, you would place it on their head. And what you were really saying as they came in and you did this, say you were valued. I am so glad you're here to participate, to fellowship with me in the midst of what we're going to do today. You are valued. And then he says, my cup overflows. The host would seat the guests before he served them. Have you ever wondered when you go to somebody's house how long you're supposed to stay? (laughs) When you're supposed to leave? You know, kind of that awkward thing. Have you ever had someone come to your house and they didn't know when to leave? And you weren't really sure how to tell them to leave? Well, this is what Trina and I do. We just get up and stretch and say, you know what, honey, let's go to bed so these good people can go home. And uh, we've never had to use that, but we've said if we ever have to, that's what we'll do. Well, there's a custom in the Middle East that everyone knew 
that had to do with filling the cup. See, if you went to somebody's house, the first thing they would do is have you sit down and then they would pour you a cup of water or a cup of wine and you would drink it and they would refill it and you would drink it again and they would refill it. Now, here's the deal. You know how long you could stay? Yeah, as long as they continued to fill it up. Now, here's the deal. Here's a, a really cool thing is, is if they ever took uh, your cup and they begin to fill it, not just to the brim, but overflowing, what they were really saying is you are free to make yourself at home and to stay here. Because you know in the desert, in the dry parts of that world, they would never waste water or wine. But this was kind of like the ultimate compliment, the ultimate welcome. They would just pour it and pour it and pour it and let it overflow. What's God saying? What's, what's, the, what's the shepherd saying to you and I about that? He says, I'm going to fill your cup to overflowing. Why? Because you matter to God. You're special to him. And you are always welcome in his presence consistently, constantly, and continually. Now, here's what I love is, is God is not a miser with his grace. Sometimes we think that he just kind of has an allotment for this person or that person. You know, this person gets a lot. This, no, he's not a miser. He doesn't give out his grace in thimbles, but he gives it liberally to every person. Have you been hurt by someone? And you're still carrying that? Some of us here might be under attack by the enemy of our soul, the devil, that we just, man, it just seems like he's just attacking us front and center. I want to remind you today that Jesus invites us to another banquet. He says, I'm going to prepare a table for you. And it's going to be overflowing with grace, love, goodness, and the power of his life. The victory that his life can bring to you in anything and everything that you face. Oh, you may not feel it right now or right away, but this is the promise. I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to give it liberally and you're going to be able to experience. But he, he comes to us and he would simply say, I want to invite you to my table. I want us to take a moment. We don't usually do communion this way, but today I felt like we just needed to come to the table and experience the grace and the goodness and the love of God, the strength and the victory of the good shepherd, Jesus Christ. And you know where you are in your life. I don't. But maybe some of us would say, man, I'm just under attack and I need to experience that victory. Some of us might say, man, I got this, this relationship that's just out of kilter, cattywampus, and, and it's not good. And I just want to pinch somebody's head off. And that's where we get to invite Jesus and his victory into whatever it is we're experiencing. I want to invite you, if you would, to take one of those little cups on the table there. here's the deal. If you're new or visiting Creekside today, two things. We have an open communion, which basically means anybody can receive it. Jesus said, whosoever will. So we don't have any kind of requirements. You've got to be a member. You've got to come here for 10 years or anything like that. It's just simply this. I would encourage you, if you have a relationship with the living Christ, this is open to you. If you don't have a relationship with God, then all you're doing is taking a little juice and a little bread and no biggie. 
It's just a religious activity. But for those of us who know the good shepherd Jesus and are walking with him, this becomes a very powerful manifestation of his life and his presence for our life and our present situation. So we're going to just sing very simply, Amazing Grace. Two verses of it. And then I'm going to come back and just kind of lead you through a brief time of communion. Maybe you would say, you know, I'm not sure where I am with the Lord Jesus, with the Good Shepherd today. Here's what you can do. I'm going to take this in faith as a point of saying, I want to enter into a relationship with Jesus. Because people come, maybe you grew up in a church. I did when I was a little kid. I grew up in this church where they said, man, you know, do a roto-rooter job on your life and see if you're good enough to receive it. See if you're worthy. So I was always afraid of receiving this. Here's the deal. Can I just tell you something? None of us are worthy. But we have great worth before the living God. And because of that, he says, I want you to come and I want you to receive freely. None of us are worthy. But every one of us has great worth in the living God. The good shepherd says, I want you to, to receive of this. Can you imagine going to the doctor and you say, wow, I got this really big problem. Could you help me? And all of a sudden he goes, well, you know something, I'd be glad to, but you got to get healthier first. And that's kind of how people do this spiritually. They say, oh boy, you got to get your life right and worthy with God. No, 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 no. Say, Lord, I'm gonna, I want to be worthy on the basis of who you are, not who I am. And you get to receive of this. So would you sing with us these couple of verses of amazing grace? David concludes by saying, only goodness and mercy will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord as long as I live. I want to remind us today, loved ones, that God provides a home for us. Here's the truth. We talked about facts and truth last week, but here's the truth. You will experience different kinds of days in life, won't you? There'll be happy days, sad days, sick days, depressing days, lonely days, difficult days. But here's what David is saying to us. He says, you'll never have to face those days alone without God's goodness and mercy. Those two things, God's goodness and mercy, will follow you all the days of your life if you're following the good shepherd Christ Jesus. He will be with you all the time. Now, some days it won't feel like it. Some days you won't even see it. But God's goodness and mercy will be there in every season of your life. You go, well, how do you know that? Well, because the scripture, the way we base our life on, says it in many places. But let me just give you one. 2 Timothy 2.13 says that God cannot deny himself. And he is faithful even when we're unfaithful. Why? Because he never changes. He never breaks a promise. And notice this passage. It doesn't say, hopefully... Maybe, possibly, let's keep our fingers crossed that goodness and mercy will follow us every day of our life. He says, no, surely it's going to happen. David, if you study the life of David, you know he went through some really difficult times, some big ups and some major downs. But he uses the word surely. You can know, be convinced of it. Why do so many of us worry about our future? Why, why do we get so uptight about it. It's because we're unsure, first of all, of what's going to happen. And then we start getting into what? We start what ifing. <laughs> what if? What if this happens? 
What's going to take place? We start asking all these questions. I was listening to a football coach a couple of weeks ago. He was in a press conference. And they were asking him a bunch of questions. And finally, one of the guys goes, now, let's just say this happens, hypothetically. And the coach just kind of stops and he says, listen, I don't deal with hypotheticals. Give me something concrete. Give me something real. And see, that's how we can live, loved ones, is we have this real, this concrete scripture, what God says. But so often we get into hypotheticals. We get into, well, what if this happens? Here's the deal. God will be with you no matter what. And here's his promise. Surely, no doubt, goodness and mercy will follow us. What's goodness? Goodness is basically God giving us good things that we don't deserve. How many of you can look at your life and go, yeah, I got some really good things that I don't deserve? That's because of God. And then he says, mercy will follow you. What's mercy? It's simply God holds back his condemnation, that which we deserve. I said this last service, and it wasn't, I mean, you know, I don't know if it's good or bad, but sometimes we forget that there's this big God up there who's holy and sinless. And at any point, if he wasn't merciful, you know what he could do? He could crispy critter every one of us. He could go, I'm tired of you, Pink. I know he's probably wanted to do that with me. Come on, Terry, get it, you're a preacher. Get it together. And here I am. And you're laughing because you go, yeah, same with me. See, that's his mercy, not giving us what we deserve. But it can be difficult to see God's goodness, can it? I mean, even Jesus at one point, didn't he have trouble with it? What did he say? My God, my God, my Father, why have you forsaken me? So we all go through these experiences. It's only later. And hear me, loved ones, if you're going through something, friends, if you're going through something right now, stay with it. Keep the grit and the courage of faith because here's the deal. You're going to get through this, whether it's a week, a month, a year, and you're going to look back and you know what you're going to say? Look what God did. Look what God did. Look what God did in me. Look what he did to change me, to grow me, and to mature me. Because God promises, Roman 8, that he will always bring good out of everything that we face. This psalm, it's about shepherding. It says, the Lord is my shepherd. And if you see a shepherd leading a flock anywhere, what you'll see, probably he'll be out in front leading them, not driving them, not pulling them, but leading them. He'll probably have one or two sheepdogs in the back. You know what they're going to be doing? They're going to be nipping at those heels. And God says there's going to be two divine sheepdogs in your life, and it's called goodness and mercy. And they're going to be coming after you from behind, and they're going to be keeping you in line. And when you need goodness and mercy, they're going to be there, and they're going to give it, even when you may not feel it. And then he says this, he says, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is an important little connection because it connects yesterday, today, with tomorrow. Whether you believe it or not, God says, I have a life plan for you. I want you to know that surely goodness and mercy is going to follow you all the way through it. But hear me, that's not the end. I've got something else even greater planned for you. And David ends this psalm by saying, guess what? Those who follow the shepherd, we as his sheep, we get to go to heaven. 
and he saves the best for last. It's almost like this crescendo. It's almost like this pinnacle, and he says the best is yet to come. Now, heaven is so grand and so glorious, I don't have time to unpack much of it today. But hear me, it's not going to be a house made with human hands. It's going to be a home that lasts forever. How long is forever? It's forever. See, we don't even have a, we don't even have a concept of forever, really, do we? I mean, we, we think like, you know, some of us thinking, man, I got 80 years under my belt. That's like forever. Listen, on the, on, the, on the radar of eternity, it is a dot. And here's the deal we can never forget. Someday you're going to die. But you aren't. Your body's going to die, but you aren't. Your body is going to go into the ground, but that's not the end of you. And here's what's going to happen. Heaven is going to be this place where we get rewarded for our faithfulness to Jesus Christ. Each of us live in this world of dissolving family circle. Mother is gone. Father is gone. We lose a child. Our beloved grandparents are gone. A close friend leaves us. But heaven is this unbroken forever where we're going to be united with loved ones who follow Jesus. I know some of you are thinking, oh boy, whew, getting a little heavy this morning, aren't we? But this is the truth. And we don't talk about this a lot. But in our lives and those around us, we're daily reminded, aren't we, of how fleeting health can be and how it can diminish so quickly. Some of us here, 25 and 30, you're going, oh, what were you talking about? Some of us who are a little older, what? We know exactly what I'm talking about. There's going to come a day, loved ones, when we're released from the pain and sorrow. I love what Revelation chapter 21, the second to the last chapter in the book of the Bible, it says that God, he's going to wipe away all tears when we get to heaven. There's going to be no suffering, no depression. There's not going to be any fear. There's not going to be darkness. No crying. It's going to be this joy, unspeakable. That's going to go on forever. And ever, yes and ever. See, Peter says this in 1 Peter. He says, this isn't your home. You are simply a sojourner. You're a traveler going through this. This is the shortest time you will be anywhere, loved ones. Hear me. It's like, it's like you're carrying around your tent, and you know you pitch it up on 324 Sunny Slopes Drive or wherever your address is, and you get it for a few years, and then you're going to pick it up. But there's going to come a day when it ends, we're going to go to heaven. Have you ever wondered why you're never really totally satisfied here on this earth? You buy a new car, you get that smell. You, you like that smell? Yeah, it's a great smell. Eight months later, what do you want? Oh, man, i got to get a new car. I want that smell again. Get that new house. It's great for about five years, and all of a sudden, what? Oh, man, I want a bigger house. Not, not people here, but out there in the world, do you always say, well, how, how, what's enough money? Oh, about a million more than I've already got. We always want more. People say, but I'm PT, you got a lot of golf balls. How many do you really need? I go, oh, just a few more. You never know how many I'm going to lose, and i got more golf balls than I could live using a lifetime. We always kind of 
want more. We're never satisfied. Why is that? I think it's because Ecclesiastes put it this way. Eternity has been set in our heart. And ultimately, we understand this isn't the final place. And that's why we're seldom satisfied. Because we can't get satisfied in a temporary place. We look around and see all that we have here. I love our community. I love Martinez. I love my home. I love my neighborhood. I love this church. I love this community. And as beautiful as it is, do you realize that this doesn't even closely compete or compare to what God has for us? If you continue to read Revelation chapter 21, you'll see, the, the, you'll see Pastor John. He's talking and, he, and he's trying to explain this place that he has no words for, but he gives us this great picture of what heaven is going to look like. In verse 21, he says that the streets are paved with gold. Isn't that interesting that the streets of heaven are going to be paved with gold? We go, woohoo, cool. But here's the point. That thing that so many people palaver after and they, and they desire and they want, that isn't even the high point of heaven. No more than the asphalt of Highway 24 is what we want. You know, do you, how many of you have gone down Highway 24 and go, wow, this is beautiful. Let me get a chunk of this. But the very thing that we devalue here, even though it's valuable in heaven, it's like nothing. The thing that we value here on this earth is like the lowliest thing in heaven. That's how grand and glorious God says it's going to be. In verse 22 of chapter 21, he says there's going to be no temple in church. I mean, excuse me, no temple in heaven. Why is that? Because in the same line there, it talks about because Jesus is going to be there. Have you ever gone to a retreat? Have you ever gone to a, a really spiritual uh, meeting or maybe come from church and you go, man, I just don't want this to end. This is too good. And then you leave and you go out and then you've got to face the real world. You know why there's going to be no temple in heaven? Because you won't have to go to church. It'll be there. Jesus will be the presence and he'll be that spiritual entity that is continually giving you that sense of this is glory. This is glorious. See, the Lord is saying about heaven, that which is most valuable to us is nothing up there. Second Corinthians, he says this, eyes haven't seen, ears haven't heard. The wonderful things that God has prepared for those who love him. Who's heaven made for? Well, it's for people who love him. It's for people who say, God, I want to be your child. I want to follow you. First Peter 1 says, God has reserved for his children the priceless gift of eternal life. Everybody created by, is created by God, but hear me, not everybody is a child of God. And this is what we haven't talked about for a while, but I never want you to forget. You have to make that choice. It doesn't happen because you bump into a few people at Creekside. It doesn't happen because you come to church, throw a few bucks into the basket, live a good life. It happens because you follow the shepherd, Jesus. You won't be here forever, but you will be in eternity forever. Everything here is on alone. You don't owe anything. That's why it's critical, loved ones, and that's why we challenge us as a church that we are critical to, it's critical that we calibrate our heart and to live everything in light of eternity 
not the temporal. Well, how do I know I'm going to heaven? <laughs> it's not because I deserve it. It's not anything that I've done or that you've done. The Bible is really clear. John 10, Jesus says, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life. He has two, two conditions there. Number one, we hear his voice. That's what we've been talking about. Number two, we make a determination to follow Jesus. It isn't about some kind of emotional experience where we get the music going and we have to do this, that, or the other. It is simply a determination that says, I'm going to follow you, Lord. Jesus said it this way, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. A lot of religions are spelled do, do this, do this, do this. Christianity is spelled done. It's all about what Jesus Christ has, D-O-N-E, done. I had a birthday recently and received some presents. I've opened every one of them. Can you imagine if I kept a couple and I just said, I'm going to put this in the shelf? That's a gift. But it does me no good if it stays wrapped and it stays on my shelf. These other ones that I've received and I'm using them, you know what? That's a gift. And it's the same thing with the life of Christ Jesus. We have to receive it. And we have to follow it. And we have to live in it. I did a funeral a couple weeks ago. And the person I did it for, the family in our church, the son said this, I got to hold my mama. She died in my hands. And he had a hard time with faith growing up and she would always tell him, honey, heaven's for real, heaven's for real. I want you to prepare for that. And as she was dying, he got to turn to his mother and say, you were right, Mama. Heaven's for real. And she passed on. She went from her son's arms to the arms of Christ. Psalm says this, precious in the sight of the Lord is the passing of his loved ones. Another translation says this, when they arrive at the gates of death, God welcomes those who love him. Here's the deal. You may say, well, oh boy, it's heavy. I don't want to waste my life on temporal. I don't want our church to waste its life on temporal stuff that doesn't have to do with eternity. And if you're here today and you've never considered the claims of the Good Shepherd Jesus and the claims of eternity, I invite you to do that today. Would you just quietly stand with me? Just bow our heads and if we would just give, just pray and I just want you to invite you that maybe you, you would just come today, some of us, there's a next step for most of us. Maybe it's experiencing the forgiveness of Christ. Maybe it's forgiving an enemy or another person. Maybe it's simply saying, I want to follow Jesus, whatever that is. I want to invite you to take that next step.
Maybe it's just saying, Jesus, come in. I kind of lost fellowship and relationship with you. Well, not relationship, but I just don't feel close. Today, come to the table and just say, Jesus, I, I want to invite you in because I know you're knocking and saying, I want to come in. Maybe some of us are facing the enemy of our soul and we need to do, deal with that. Invite him in because he wants to give you victory.